Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Bless the speaking and the hearing of your word. Amen. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So the, the, we're in week three now, chapter three, week three, and uh, just as recap uh, for you, we started week one, Pastor Pat preached on Jesus the Hero uh, and of uh, Mark's gospel, and it really is the focal point. In fact, you just heard that from Tim and I, that even in these unassuming parables, these little stories, that Jesus is the center. He's really the focus of all of the activity, all of the action, uh, all of God's working uh, for us. Uh, last week, we talked about the lengths that Jesus is willing to go to so that you and I might have life eternally with him. And today, uh, I think we're going to get a little frustrated with Jesus, and that's okay. So we're going to dig in uh, to chapter 3. Maybe you guys, as you just heard that scripture reading, your mind might have just grabbed hold or your heart might have just grabbed hold onto one particular thing in there, uh, and we'll see what we can do with it. I want to start, though, like I usually do, with some kind of a question for you. Uh, and these are actually just successive rhetorical questions, so you don't have to answer me out loud. Sometimes I do love responses from you guys. Um, but how do you make sure that your kids succeed? How do you make sure that your kids succeed? How do you guarantee a good retirement? How do you manage any particular outcome that you're looking for? Maybe it's a health, maybe it's relationship, maybe it's work. Whatever you seek to do, whether it's for kids, for your finances, for your relationships, for your health, whatever it is, there is a program or a formula or nowadays an algorithm that you can follow and if they'll explain to you that if you know how it works, then you can manage it and then you can get the desired outcome that you seek. Now, you know that I'm going to pick on these things a little bit, but we, they, by and large, a lot of these things do work, right? For, at least for a lot of people. Um, in fact, we're right in the middle of baseball season. I don't know if we have any other baseball fans in here. It's one of my favorites. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a huge movement in baseball over the last decade at least. Now, baseball has always been a statistically driven sport, right? So you're an amazing batter if you can hit the ball one out of three times up to bat, right? And you'll hear someone about who's a pitcher. You'll hear, hear about their earn run average, right? You have all these numbers. It's very data heavy, but definitely in the last 10 years, that has kind of been turned up to 11 in baseball. Uh, there was actually a movie made about this uh, called Moneyball, uh, with Brad Pitt some, many years back. Uh, and it's, a, it's about a thing called Sabermetrics. That's what it's called, Sabermetrics. You can uh, Google or Wikipedia this if you want uh, and learn more about it and get lost in that rabbit hole if you're interested. But basically, with Sabermetrics, the idea is that you can understand the statistics so well. You can get every like subcategory of a statistic for hitting and fielding and pitching and all of the different dynamics of baseball that you never even have to look at a player like like I'm looking at you guys right now. 
You don't have to see them. You don't have to talk to them. You don't have to see how they throw or how they hit. You can just make all of your decisions based on the numbers. And there's a lot of teams who have had quite a bit of success. In fact, last year, the Tampa Bay Rays went all the way to the World Series using sabermetrics as their approach to winning. So they, they understood this is how baseball works. I will manage it with the statistics. The outcome is I will win. And they won an awful lot of the time until they didn't. So if anyone watched any of the World Series last year, my wife's beloved team, the Dodgers, finally got their drought, their 30-year drought ended. And in game six, what was going on in the game was you had this pitcher, Blake Snell, who was throwing lights out. I know some of you are already like, you lost me at baseball, Pastor Ryan, and you're still continuing with this story. But anyway, he, had, he was lights out into the fifth inning, and he had one out and one guy on base. And all of the Dodger batters were like, I don't want to keep facing this guy. He's just on tonight. But the management of the Tampa Bay Rays said, no, statistically, he's thrown too many of these pitches. He's going to face these batters for a third time. Therefore, despite what we're seeing in front of us with our own eyes, we are going to follow the formula because we know that's how you do it. You'll manage it. You'll get the outcome you want. And they pulled him in the fifth inning. They were up 1-0 at that point. And then, of course, we all know what happened. Mookie Betts and the rest of the Dodgers were like, yes, they're taking this guy out and they're throwing in somebody else from the bullpen. And they went on to win the game and the World Series. So they had the formula, but they still couldn't get the outcome that they were looking for. How many of us, maybe in your own lives, if you have grown children now, or if you are in the midst of parenting, or you just know someone who has parented, how often have you seen a scenario where you thought parents were doing an excellent job with their children? They were making all the right decisions. They were wise. They were giving their kids all of the best benefits. And then something happened, and that kid just went, completely off the deep end. Or you see people who do a terrible job of parenting someone and the kid turns out just fine. And yet the amount of books that you can buy on how to get, right? How to, how your kid operates, how they think, what kind of kid they are. Then you can manage your kid, right? And if you manage them the correct way using the formula or the program that you've been given, then you can get the outcome that you desire. Any of us with any level of, of kind of just life experience starts, you guys have smirks on your faces. I can see it already. Like, yeah, yeah, it's not going to work. And yet, we all keep pursuing these things. Like we know that there are experiences in our lives that we just have to toss up, didn't see how that was going to happen. And yet it doesn't stop us from wanting to manage and from trying to manage so many of these things in our lives. The thinking is, if I can understand it, I can manage it, I can control the outcome. And for a lot of things in our lives, just, just enough of them work that we keep doing that thing. So, how does God work? How does God work? It's probably not a question that we ask ourselves or out loud uh, much of the time, and yet we all have 
default thoughts of how he works. In fact, I would venture to say that every single person, I know it's kind of a bold statement when you do an every person, but I feel like every single person has a default setting of God as uh, punishment reward oriented, right? So in other words, you have this, some people like to call it um, uh, karma or something like this, but the idea basically is that if you do good, you will get good, right, out of God. If you do bad, then you will get bad, right? And obviously we're, you know, good Christians here, so we know it's not about our works, right? Uh, And yet, we still will do the formula with God. It might not be if I do good. It might be if I say the right things. It might be if I'm believing the right things. The idea is that I can input something into the God program, and then he's supposed to give me the outcome that I'm looking for. And so in some way, everybody kind of defaults to this punishment reward thinking with God. Or maybe you're thinking that's too uh, (laughs) computer-driven in your mind. Um, Just think about your own life experiences and places that you look back on you and you think God was at work in this. Why? Why do you think he was at work in that thing? What about those spaces in your life that you assume he has nothing to do with that? Why do you think that? Or think about people in your lives. Who do you associate as God having a real strong hand in them? And who do you think couldn't be further away from God and his operations in our lives? My point in asking all of these questions is that we have this kind of default, these default thoughts, and most of them are probably even subconscious to us, that we just have assumptions that we know how God works and how he doesn't work. And when we have those assumptions, then we will try to manage God in some way, right? Sometimes that's what our prayer life is like. We're just trying to manage him. This is what I'm looking to do, or this is what I need from you, or this is how I think you want me to talk to you, and that that becomes its own kind of pressure cooker for us. But we, we have these assumptions of how God works and how he doesn't. So then we try to manage him, which is a very fascinating thing that we do. Just every single person, I'm not saying sinners out there, I'm saying every one of us tries to manage God, and we are hoping that he will give us whatever outcome we are looking for. Well, for all of us who are middle managers in this way, Mark's gospel is very frustrating, at least it is to me. So maybe you guys are sensing the frustration. I'm just talking to myself here. You guys are overhearing this, okay? (laughs) Because Jesus is not allowing himself to be managed by anybody in in the scripture today. He's not allowing it. And you see it first with the people that he chooses to be his disciples. Now, we're familiar with these names, with Peter and James and John and Thomas, doubting Thomas, and Matthew. He was the tax collector that Jesus called just last week in Mark 2. We're familiar with these names. But consider that Jesus has entered into the scene from John the Baptist, and all of the people in Jerusalem, especially kind of the the elite, the religious elite, are thinking, okay, if this is the Messiah— What's he going to do? What's his program going to be? How does God work if he's the Messiah? And they're probably assuming, well, let's say he's not a Messiah. Let's say he's a prophet or at least a great teacher. Who should he call to be part of his ministry? 
Who do you want working on your team? The best and the brightest. And that's not who Jesus calls. <laughs> he calls uneducated fishermen, and he calls a tax collector who works for the enemy, and he calls uh, Simon the Zealot. Don't you wish you had that as your nickname, the Zealot? You know what that you know what a zealot what that means basically in Mark's gospel. It means this guy is like a freedom fighter for Israel. So he is like a kind of violent insurrectionist type person. That's who Jesus calls as one of his disciples. And so the religious leaders, they come out from Jerusalem, as we hear in the story, and they're already mad at Jesus because he's not operating the way that they believe God is supposed to operate. They, he should be working with them, and, and he's not. And so notice what that kind of uh, attitude does to them. If you've ever been kind of uh, rebuffed by somebody else, then you can come up with all the worst things about them, can't you? <laughs> if somebody has really harmed you in some way, then you can think of every single thing that's terrible. I think about like the guy who gets dumped by the girl. I never liked her anyway, and here's all the things that are wrong with her. And that's what he, they, these guys come out to Jesus and they do the same thing. They're saying, well, if you're casting out demons, it's probably because you're in league with Satan. I mean, how much harsher a statement could they make about Jesus? They think that this would not be God's project doing it this way, and so they're opposed to him. God can't work this way, and we can't seem to manage you. And it's not just the religious leaders. You heard a little snippet of it just before they showed up. Jesus' friends think he's out of his mind, and they try to stop him. And at the very end of the chapter, Jesus' own family comes to him and says, this is not how we thought it was going to go, right? I mean, imagine that if Jesus is your brother and he's doing, just think of your own sibling, someone that you grew up with, and now something is radically different about what they're doing. You can't manage it. I mean, you can't even wrap your, your head around it. And so they're trying to control him and Jesus will not be managed by them. And it's not just Jesus. This is God's whole approach through Scripture. People are constantly trying to grasp how he's supposed to work. Then they manage him. Then they try to get the outcomes, right? So Adam and Eve, when they're asked about whether they should eat the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they say, well, God says don't eat it and don't even touch it. They even add words to God. And they try to manage their situation on their own. They try to hide from him instead of trusting him. Abraham and Sarah are told that they will have uh, a child in their own old age. And they think, well, that's great. Thank you, God. He must mean we need to do it ourselves. <laughs> and so they try to take matters into their own hands. In fact, Sarah is so surprised because she could not expect this from God that she laughs when she's told that this is going to happen. That's not how things work. I can't manage this. Sometimes our, our lack of management in life, life is like surprise, laughter, joy. That's what happens for them. Moses is asked by God or told by God, really, you're going to go to Pharaoh and I'm going to free my people from slavery. And Moses tries to manage God's expectations when he tries to get out of it. He says, well, you know, they don't really know who I am. I ran away. Uh, or they don't know who you are. Or I know speak good. Uh, he just keeps coming up with excuse after excuse because he thinks that the way God would work is to call the best and the brightest. And God says, no, I'm calling you, Moses. And through you, I'm going to free my people. Jonah is asked or told by God, go to Nineveh, to the enemies of God's people, and 
warn them that they're going to face punishment from me. And Jonah, he does seem to know how God operates, that God is actually going to show mercy to these people. And so he runs the other way. He tries to manage God in that way. See, all through Scripture, we see people trying, they think they know how God works, so then they try to manage him so that they can get the outcomes that they're looking for. And time and again, God will not be managed. And this is actually good news for you and me. I know it's frustrating news, but it's actually good news for us. Because every single one of our attempts to manage God actually works against his creative and redemptive purposes. Every time we try to put God in a box for our lives of what is appropriate or not appropriate or what we need him to do for us now or later or how he's supposed to use us in our lives, all of those things always work against his amazing creativity, the spontaneous things that we experience, the, the, the uh, redeeming, salvific things that God is working in our lives. If, we, if God just did what we managed him to do, how horrible would our lives be? Just think over your own life about some of the things that you did not, that they, did, they did not come out the way you thought they were supposed to. It's things that just surprised you completely, like you were trying to manage it and instead God did something else with it completely. Would you want him to take it back? No. See, when we try to manage God, we, we are actually restricting the, the awe and wonder of what he is about, what abundant life is for, for us. And so thankfully, God will not be managed by you and me. He is going to do what he's going to do. And Jesus even does so in the text here. I mean, they, everybody is trying to stop him from this project that he's on. His friends, the religious elite, his own family, they're all saying, hey, pump the brakes here, Jesus. And Jesus will not do it. He will not ma uh, be managed because he will go to the cross and lay down his life in the completely unexpected. No one expects that God is going to do that. No one thinks that's how it's supposed to work. And yet it has changed everything for you and me. How is God working right now in your life? I would not even try to venture an answer for you. I'm not even going to try because that would just be me trying to manage him again. I have no idea how he's working in my life right now, and I have no idea how he might be working in your own. But what we do know is that in our text, the people in our reading wanted to manage Jesus even though he was working their salvation. And what we do know for ourselves is that God is not in the business of managing you. I mean, he knows exactly how we work, but he's not interested in managing you for some other outcome. You are not a means to some other end. You're the end. You're the goal. God has created you and redeemed you and loves you. No management necessary. And this means that by God's Holy Spirit, we can trust him and see what he will do. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.